This morning's sermon comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Years ago, I was leading, we were in our home leading a Bible study, an investigative Bible study of sorts, and it was about a four to six week plan of having a study with our neighbors. And the first time we were together, I opened with just a question to generate some discussion. And that was, are, are people basically good or are people basically bad? And we went around and people shared, and you can imagine the, the gamut of responses to that, from one extreme all the way to the other. And after a brief discussion around that and people shared, I opened up to Jeremiah 17, 9 and read that verse, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can know it? And almost before I could get to the, the end of the verse, one of the ladies that was sitting in our den went, no, that's not true. And you can imagine, after the, the dust settled, <laughs> and and we all just kind of took it in. I said, you know, your, your answer to that question, right, is the heart basically good or is the heart basically bad, is gonna absolutely impact the way that you both read and understand this book that we call the Bible. If, if people are basically good, if the heart is basically good, then the Bible just serves as kind of a tune-up manual, you know, of some, some principles and some good ideas of how you should live your life. But if the heart is, as the scriptures say, desperately sick and deceitful, then the Bible is a rescue story. It's a story of how we need to be rescued, a story of how we need to be saved. And though the entire Bible lays out this rescue story, we've just landed on 10 verses in Ephesians 2 that boil it down very succinctly to what exactly is this rescue story and what it means to be saved. Understand that when you use that word, are you saved? And I remember before I was a Christian hearing that question and going, what does that mean? I mean, I know what it was to be saved from 
you know, a car that flipped over coming south from Pittsburgh for spring break one spring on an icy bridge. I, I you know, the volunteer fire department from West Virginia came up and, and saved us, so to speak. I know what's to be saved from, you know, a, a river, whitewater rafting river that's gone overflowing and I'm floating down the river by myself for three quarters of a mile. I know what it's to be saved. But we use that word and I don't know that we understand really what it means. What does it mean to be saved? What is the word saved and salvation in this passage talking about? We're going to explore it. And we're going to do it by asking three questions. What are you saved from? How are you saved? And what are you saved to? So let's start with what are you saved from? Verse one says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Pretty descriptive. Verse two starts to explain what it means that you're dead, what it looks like to be dead. And it says that you follow the course of this world and you follow the prince of the air, which is speaking of the devil. Now, we could spend time going into what does it mean to follow the course of this world? What does it mean to follow the devil? The reality is both of those, the world and the devil, there's a common denominator beneath both. Because you'll notice at the end of verse two that Paul says the devil is the spirit at work, that's active, in the sons of disobedience. The question is, how is he at work? How is the devil, the spirit, the devil at work? In 1 Timothy 3, this is as Paul is describing some qualifications for elder. He says in verse six, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So conceit, pride, self-centeredness, self-absorption. You say, what made the devil the devil? Paul says it's that, it's conceit, it's pride. That the devil made the choice he made because of that. The devil was a good angel created by God and then chose for autonomy and wanted to be on the throne in place of God. And the result has been the work that he is doing since then of trying to get followers to do the same thing, which is to insert yourself on the throne where God belongs. And so what we see at the, the, the central work of following the course of this word world or following the devil is this issue of self-centeredness, this issue of pride. And then verse three just confirms it. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That word passion means a, a deep desire, a, a lust for. And the word flesh there means self-centered human nature. That we are passionate, deeply desirous, lustful to live for self. Martin Luther, theologian of the past, uh, describes the human heart as curved in on itself. That our hearts are curved in on themselves and that the wicked heart uses everything, even God for its own sake. That the wicked heart or the deceitful sick heart that we read about in Jeremiah 17 uses everything and serves nothing. Think about the United States Secret Service. 
All right, and I want you to think about specifically a Secret Service agent who is put on detail with the president. And that agent or those agents' job is to protect the president. And imagine as the president works down a, uh, a road or in a public venue or public space, and he has his Secret Service agents that are walking next to him. Right? Their job is to protect the president. If they're walking along and someone collapses with a heart attack, they don't leave their post and go help that person because they're protecting the president. If they're walking along and they see a little toddler screaming and yelling and crying and panicking because he lost his mom or dad, they don't care about that. Their job is to protect the president. If, if they're moving along and uh, an, old, an older woman slips and falls, right, they don't leave the president and go help that older wo woman because they have one job. Everything they do is filtered through one lens, and that is, does this impact the safety of the president? and protecting the president. Your heart, your natural sinful heart process, processes everything through one lens. And that lens has a question and a goal. Right? The question is, what's in it for me? And the goal is protection of self. That's, that is the sinful heart. And what we learn here in this passage is you don't have to... Uh, a choose to do that. The, the, it's by nature, verse three says, by nature, you're children of wrath, meaning that you and I, as hard as it is to hear, we are born into this world committed narcissists. That we're born into this world incredibly self-centered. And if you spent any time with toddlers, right, you wouldn't argue that. You see it right out of the womb. One author says this, the most difficult lie I have ever contended with is that life is about me. But something happens. While we say in toddlers and with toddlers, you see that intense self-absorption. Something happens from toddler to teenager to adult. And something called self-denial sets in. In fact, there may be some of you right now that are squirming a little bit on the inside saying, I'm really not that self-centered. I wish you'd quit, quit saying that. What happens is this self-denial comes in where we really don't own our true condition. Here's the evidence of it. What happens when somebody does something really bad or uh, out of what is perceived to be their good character, right? What happens when some, somebody does something really bad? What's the common response? I can't believe he did that, period. That's not him. Well, no, it is him. That is him. Uh, Tyler Summit, many, many of you probably don't even know the name. Uh, up until just recently, he was the 23-year-old coach of the women's basketball team at Louisiana Tech. He was just recently asked to resign because he had uh, what is said to be an inappropriate relationship with a woman, presumably, the article was saying, a woman on his college basketball team. Now, he's the son of, maybe this will help you, the great Pat Summit, who is this legendary, historic, winningest of all time, right, women's basketball coach at the University of Tennessee, and he was in the next in line to do the same thing. 
I read the article and it was interesting. One, he was married. Two, it said that he regularly tweeted out Bible verses. And three, is it said that he overwhelmingly demanded that his team and his players live their lives with character. Okay? So this tells you the kind of person he is, which is why there's this utter shock in his world and sphere. How could he do something like this? That's not him. And if we understand the gospel and we understand the scriptures, the answer is yes, that is him. That is you. That is me. That we have incredibly self-centered hearts. And our self-centered hearts manifest itself in different ways. And this is important for you to see. Self-centeredness, the sin of self-centeredness, the core of sin, can make you incredibly cruel. It can make you chop heads off in the deserts of the Middle East as an Islamic radical. Uh, It can make you, self-centeredness can make you incredibly violent and go off on a mass shooting spree in a public school. But self-centeredness can also make you incredibly moral, that you do the right thing. You're a good citizen because why? Makes you feel good about yourself. One pastor was leading a, a group study and they were talking about this topic. And uh, I hope this doesn't happen today. But uh, after the, the study, one of the, one of the people in the group came up to the pastor and said, said, Pastor, I'm not that self-centered. I mean, goodness, I serve downtown at the food kitchen. I'm helping homeless people. And the pastor said, that's great. Why do you do it? And he said, because it makes me feel good. That even our good efforts, I want you to see, self-centeredness can make you incredibly moral. But for self-absorbed reasons. Self-centeredness can also make you incredibly religious. Remember, the self-centered human heart will use anything for its own sake, even God. Why not get the most powerful, powerful being in the universe on your side to get you what you want, right? You know, in 1996, before I came to Christ, I started going back to church because I felt awful about myself. The sin had caught up to me. The spirit, I didn't know it at the time, but hindsight, spirit was convicting me. So I thought, you know what? I'll go back to church. This will make me feel good about myself. And so I went, and it didn't work, ultimately. Right? Self-centeredness can make you incredibly religious. So what's the trajectory of self-centeredness? What's the trajectory of, of, of sin, of trespasses, as, as described in this passage, and of self-centeredness? Well, it's described in, in verse 3. It says, and were by nature children of wrath, by nature, children of wrath. Wrath, God's wrath is his settled hostility against everything that is destroying his good creation. Romans chapter one describes, the same phrase happens, I believe, three times in Romans one, where it says, God gave them over to their lusts and their passions. In other words, it says, God gave them over 
to their self-centered pursuits. And it gets descriptive in Romans 1 of what that turned into. But the core is of God giving them over to their self-centered pursuits. That's the trajectory of self-centeredness. You know, hell, when we think about hell, hell is gonna be a place of utter autonomy, isolation, pride, disintegration, torture. Self-centeredness, because that's where the devil started. The devil moved how he did out of a, out of a very self-centered, prideful place. And hell is just gonna be the, the trajectory of that. Self-centeredness is hell beginning in you. Self-centeredness is hell beginning in the human heart and played out and unchecked. That's the end of it. You know, I was watching a, a documentary. I've been watching a few documentaries lately. Um, I was watching a documentary called Into the Wild. Maybe some of you have seen it or at least know the story. It's the story of this man, young man, Chris McCandless, who uh, hitchhiked up the western coast of the United States. He came from a very well-to-do family, graduated college, um, wanted to find himself, free spirit, hitchhikes up the western coast of the United States, up through Canada, finally gets to Alaska and hikes into this remote part of Alaska. He crosses a, a river, which was, a, at the time he crossed it, like ankle deep. It was more like a creek, maybe knee deep. Crosses over, finds an old bus in the woods and starts to live in it. Came in with a 10-pound bag of rice and a rifle and something like that. And he starts to live. Finally, he arrives where he wanted, right? He's in the wild by himself. End of his journey, found himself, found a little home bus in the woods. And after a couple months, he was done. He was ready to get back to civilization, back to community, back to people, right? The isolation, the, the end of, the, of what he had dreamt of doing wasn't getting it done. And he was probably running out of food as well. So he, he hikes back. He gets to the river that he crossed. And the river now is a raging river. He can't cross it. He's stuck. So he goes back. He's running out of food, so he starts eating some berries. And the berries turn out to be poisonous. And this documentary depicts it, and it's excruciating to watch. This man, over a period of weeks, slowly die. And as I watched it, I thought, boy, that's a picture of hell. That's a picture of being left to your own self-centeredness your own search for self, your own attempt to find self, live for self, that that's where self-centeredness ends ultimately with God's wrath. It was a sad story and yet it was a very vivid picture of what it looks like to live for self and just the ultimate trajectory of where that ends up. Second question if that's what you're saved from, how are you saved from it? How are you saved from it? Two of the most beautiful words in the Bible appear in verse four. They are two of the most glorious words in the Bible. Verse four, but God. As we divorced from God, committed to self, autonomy, independence, driving this world, driving our lives off a cliff, God 
intervenes. God intervenes and does what you couldn't do. Verse five, by grace you have been saved. Verse eight, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. God intervenes. See, that, that verse four should say, there shouldn't be a but God. It should be the story just sadly played out. But God intervened and brought salvation by grace. In C.S. Lewis's book, The, the Great Divorce, he tells the story of a, a busload of ghosts or ghost men that, from hell that take a trip up to heaven one day. And when they get to the outskirts of heaven, they see the bright men of heaven. And just even the depiction of gray ghosts and bright men is depicting the difference between life and death and light and darkness. And one of these ghosts sees a bright man that he knew on earth who was a murderer. And so he goes up to this bright man and he engages in conversation with him. And uh, he begins to brag a bit and he says, listen, the ghost man from hell says, this bright man, listen, I've lived a good life. I'm a good citizen. I tried hard. I never took any handouts. I earned what I got. And then he says, so how is it that I, a good man, am down there in hell and you, a bloody murderer, are in heaven? And the, the bright man responds and he says, oh, oh, I'll, I'll tell you. Everything up here in heaven is for the asking but you can't buy anything. To which the, the ghost man replies, I will not take bleeding charity from anyone. I will get what I've earned and I will get what I deserve. It's that picture of just staunch pride of bringing what he has done and the inability to accept grace and to be a charity case. You know, the reality is only charity cases are fit for heaven. Only charity cases are fit for heaven. You see, you and I are like an instrument that's out of tune. Some of you hear that story and you go, you know, I get it. Thief on a cross, murderer, welcomed into paradise by Jesus, good person, lives a good life, good moral person, works in the food kitchen, helps people. That's hard to, that's hard to swallow. Why is that the case? Why can't my good works get me into heaven? Well, here's why. You and I are like a, an instrument that's out of tune, okay? We're an instrument that's out of tune. And no matter how well you, uh, you strum the chords on a guitar that is out of tune, you're gonna play bad music, right? You, you can find the most accomplished, greatest guitar player in the world and you put them on a guitar that's out of tune, they will play bad music. You get lessons from the greatest guitar player in the world, and you play on an instrument, a guitar that's out of tune, you will play bad music. Likewise, you can do as many uh, self-help programs that you want. You can read as many books on moral improvement. You can do all of that. The problem is your heart is out of tune. It's not tuned to God, it's tuned to yourself. And so we all play very different versions of bad music. Some of us play, well, maybe not some of us in this room. 
Some in the world play a very violent version of bad music. Some play a very cruel version of bad music. Some play a very moral version of bad music. Some play a very religious version of bad music. The problem is your heart is out of tune and you can't tune it. God has to tune your heart, retune your heart. And that's what he does here. Verse four, but God, salvation by grace. He comes in and retunes your heart so that you can play good music. And how does he do it? He goes to the place where you and I deserve to be. You know, the irony of the gospel, the irony of salvation is this. We put ourselves where God deserves to be on the throne in self-centeredness and autonomy and self-absorption. God puts himself in the place where we deserve to be on the cross, bearing wrath in our place. Right, we, we sang it this morning in Rock of Ages. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Now, why does God save you? This is perhaps one of the most perplexing things to try to figure out in the Bible. You say, what's, what's, the, what's the most perplexing verse to you in the Bible? We'd run to Leviticus or run to Deuteronomy or I don't understand this. You know what's the most perplexing verse in the Bible? And a few that are like it. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. This right here, verse four. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. Now we know what that means, dead in trespasses. That's not inactive. We've just explored it. No, no, it's very active. It's an active death. It's active rebellion against God. It's active commitment to self and self-absorption and self-centeredness. Entitlement. Think about this. How, how hard is it for you to love someone who is arrogant, entitled, and ungrateful? Just put that person in your mind. Don't say it out loud. Put that person in your mind for a second. Arrogant, ungrateful, entitled. How, how hard is it for you to love that person? Well, if you're anything like me, it's incredibly hard. That's you before God. Arrogant, entitled, ungrateful. And it says, even when you were that, God loved you. God loved you. Now, let me go back to that question. What if that person, maybe you didn't bring this person in your mind, but the arrogant, entitled, ungrateful person, what if that's your own child? It changes the game a little bit, doesn't it? You have an incredibly, incredibly long leash to love your child. Even when they get into that place, there's a love for your child that is totally disconnected from what they do or don't do. And that's, that's the answer here is that God loves us. He, mu he must love us because he loves us, period. Not because we've lived a hard life and he feels bad for us and he has to give us love. Not because we lived a good life and he, he feels compelled or obliged to have to do it. Or not because he loves us because he loves us. And it's totally disconnected from your performance 
and your good works and what you do or don't do. That's what's amazing about this, is even dead in your sins, God loved you. And that's why he saved you. That is why he saved you. If you're in Christ this morning, that is why he saved you, because he loves you. And that's why he doesn't quit on you when you continue to have self-centered moments and self-absorbed moments. That's why he doesn't quit on you. So we've looked at what you're saved from. We've looked at how you are saved. Finally, what are you saved to? What are you saved to? You're saved to, I'm gonna lump this into two categories. Inwardly and outwardly, what you're saved to. Now let's start with inwardly. What are you saved to? Look at verse nine. It says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, when we think of boasting, we think of bragging. Right? In the ancient world, boasting was, not, was, was much more than just merely bragging as we would understand it. Boasting was, was, was something completely different. You know, Paul uses uh, battlefield imagery here. And uh, he, he uses some in verse six when he says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What's this mean? What does that verse six mean? In, an, in the ancient world in the battlefield, if, if you went out and you conquered and you won a battle and you were victorious, when you came back home, they would give you the seat of honor as the conquering one at the right hand of the king's throne. That's what would happen. So what Paul is saying here is Jesus Christ conquered. He conquered death, he conquered Satan, and God ascended him to the right hand, to his right hand, to a place, to a seat of honor. Now you have to ask, well, what does it mean that we're seated with Christ? It says here that we're raised with him, that we're seated with him in the heavenlies. Obviously, that's not literal. And you've got your self-planted in a seat here in the University Center in Jacksonville, Florida. But it is true legally, which means this, that God honors you and accepts you as he does his own son. That that's what it means. Now, how's this connected to boasting? Again, boasting in the ancient world and in this context was very different. They would, when, a, when an army or a nation was going off to battle, the, the battalion or whatever the, the group was that was going off to battle, the night before, they would boast, and it would look something like this. They, they knew they were going into battle. They knew they probably were going to lose their lives, and so they would boast. They would say, well, we've got bigger chariots than them, and we've got better armory than them, and we've got better and longer swords, and we've got more soldiers, and we're bigger, and they would, they would boast. And what they were doing was building their confidence to face something really difficult. You see, boasting outside of Christ is an attempt to build your confidence. I've said it before, but everyone in this room, let's just call a spade a spade. We're massively insecure. We're just insecure people for a variety of different reasons. And boasting outside of Christ, which may mean uh, boasting in a career, boasting in your bank account, boasting in a relationship, uh, boasting in your grades, boasting in athletic achievement, whatever it may be, boasting is an attempt right, to build your confidence. 
and to get hold of the honor that your heart desperately needs. And so what we see here is that salvation is the end of that boasting because the honor that your heart needs, the the significance that your heart needs now comes from Christ. You don't need anything else. That Christ honors you, that God honors you. He raises you to to the right hand to that place of honor and power because you're in Christ. That's why Paul, the apostle Paul, who was a man who had a lot of reason to boast, and he did for Christ, boast in his achievements, uh, boast in his accolades, boast in his intellect. That's why he says in Galatians 6, 14, "But, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You understand what that means? What he's saying? I don't need the world. It's been crucified to me. I don't need the world to to acclaim me and to give me confidence and security and significance. I don't need that anymore. I've got the one thing that gives me all that I need, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. That, That gives me the honor that I need. I don't boast in that other stuff anymore. I boast in the cross of Christ. And what I want you to see inwardly when you are at a place of boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ, what kind of contentment and gratitude that will bring to your heart. That when you're boasting in Christ and when you understand you're saved to a life of contentment and gratitude and that you find that in the cross and that it can't be taken away, It's amazing. Those of you that are teachers will appreciate this. One day before class started, a teacher under one-third of the chairs in her classroom taped one piece of candy. And then over another third of the chairs, under those chairs, uh, she taped a bag of candy. And over the last third of chairs, she taped nothing. The kids come into class that day and they're laughing, you know, right? Kind of in the beginning before class starts. They're laughing, they're talking, they're in good spirits. Everything is great. And about five minutes in, the teacher says, now I want you to look underneath your chair. And you can imagine what happened. Good spirits, joy, contentment, gratitude, all came crashing down. As the kids got under their chair and pulled out their goods, you can imagine the ones that had nothing under their chair. They became mad, angry, bitter, frustrated. And the ones that had one piece of candy looked at the ones that pulled out the bag of candy and they were envious and bitter and ungrateful. And here is the irony of that story. Nothing was taken away from any of those children. Nothing was taken away. Nothing changed other than they were freely given, some of them, a gift. Listen, when you're boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ, meaning that that's where you get your honor and your significance, it doesn't matter in this life if you get a piece of candy or a bag of candy or no candy at all. And that is the reality of life in this world. That is the the sheer reality of living in this world. 
But when you're boasting in the cross of Christ, it doesn't matter if you get one piece, a bag, or nothing. Why? Because everything on top of the cross of Jesus Christ is a gift. And the cross of Jesus Christ is a gift. Wow, all of life is a gift. He gives, he takes away. But guess what he can't take away if you're in Christ? The cross of Christ, his resurrection, his ascension, and the fact that you're seated with him, which means God, which means God honors you and gives you the honor that your heart needs. So first, you're, you're saved to, inwardly, contentment and gratitude. Second, you're saved outwardly, verse 10, or saved to outwardly. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation delivers you from self-centered works of destruction to other-centered works of redemption and beauty. That's the work of what salvation does. The, the Greek word for workmanship in verse 10, the word is poema. It's where we get the word poem. That God is rewriting a poem in this world that has become a funeral dirge. He's rewriting a poem and your life is a line in that poem. Back in the early 90s, war had started to break out and tear apart Bosnia. This was in the early 90s. And war-torn Bosnia became just a place of just utter disaster. There were food shortages. And on May 27th, 1992, there were people in Sarajevo, one of the largest cities in Bosnia, that were lined up at one of the still-functioning bakeries in the city. Most of them had been blown apart, waiting for their bread. A mortar shell comes down in the middle of that line and explodes and kills 22 people. The lead cellist of the Sarajevo Orchestra lived blocks from it, heard the explosion, came down, was appalled at what he saw. Just a bloody massacre, rubble everywhere. And he felt powerless to do anything about it. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't a soldier. But he was a musician. And he could play music that spoke truth to the heart that transcended lots of languages. And so the next day, he took his cello and he went right to the middle of where the rubble was, where this bomb had gone off and destroyed 22 lives, and he began playing beautiful music with his cello. And the crowds gathered. In the midst of still mortar shells going off and sniper fire, they took great risk. They gathered around this, this beauty of music in the middle of something that was blown apart. He did it every day for the next 22 days in this very spot in honor of the 22 people that had died, obviously for no charge. And he continued to play his cello at funerals and other places where the massacre and the bombs had destroyed stuff. And he played and he played and he played and he never stopped playing because he had a gift to bring to a broken, shattered world. God saves you 
from self-centeredness that ultimately leads to destruction and brokenness. He saves you through his son, Jesus Christ, by grace so that you can bring redemption and beauty to this world. And every person in this room who's in Christ, verse 10 applies to you. That there are good works that God has prepared before the foundation of the world that match up with your wiring and your personality and your spiritual gifting that God says, I want you to find that gift and I want you to take it and I want you to go use it wherever I place you and bring beauty to a broken and to a shattered world. Let's pray. Father, it is absolutely humbling to see the progression of what you describe in this passage, that we're all self-centered, self-absorbed, and that we have seen our self-centeredness and the destruction it brings, and yet you intervened and brought us to Christ, saved us, rescued us, and now you, you tell us that before the foundation of the world that you have given us a gift that you've prepared good works for us to be a line in the poem of redemption that you are writing. Oh, Father, would you, would you bring us by your spirit to that place of using our gift, of actively being that line in the poem wherever you've placed us to bring beauty to places of darkness. And Father, I pray that if there's those in this room who have never understood the good news of the gospel and have never surrendered their lives to Christ, that this morning you might, by your spirit, grab hold of their hearts and draw them to yourself and unleash them. There's a depth to every person in this room, Father, that goes far deeper than we understand. It's a depth because we're created in your image. And as we close in worship now, would we sing of your salvation, rejoice in it, and be willing vessels to be used as light in this world. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.